Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. This is episode number six, and it's jam-packed with commentary, plus the return of my Uncle Butch, who will help me tell the story of the week. Before I get to all of that, please allow me to let loose about the ACLU, guns, political programming, and much more. I'd like to begin by discussing the American Civil Liberties Union, aka ACLU. This organization that once upon a time rightly defended the First Amendment rights of Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan is now reduced to calling women vulva owners. They are also endorsing U.S. citizens being segregated based on their personal medical decisions, a.k.a vaccine mandates. And they do more than endorse all that. They help fund it through their donations to Democratic candidates. Well, the ACLU went off the rails again recently. In a statement reacting to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, ACLU Wisconsin Interim Executive Director Shadi Ali blamed the, quote, deep roots of white supremacy, close quote, in Kenosha for preventing Rittenhouse from being, quote, held responsible for his actions, close quote. In a Twitter thread, the ACLU complained that Rittenhouse, they complained that he was not held accountable for his, quote, conscious decision to travel across state lines and injure one person and take the lives of two people protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake by police, close quote. One more example from Brandon Buskey, who is the director of the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. He said, quote, Kyle Rittenhouse was a juvenile who traveled across state lines on a vigilante mission, was allowed by police to roam the streets of Kenosha with an assault rifle, and ended up shooting three people and killing two. These are the simple, tragic facts, close quote. Facts? No. Tragic? Yes, indeed. Because it is not against the law to travel across state lines. Calling it a vision, vigilante mission is not factual. We don't know. Uh, the people shot may or may not have been protesters. Based on evidence, it seems unlikely. And being allowed by police to roam with an assault rifle? Well, ACLU, as you should know, Wisconsin is an open carry state. Now, none of this is to declare my personal opinion about what happened. It is to point out that the ACLU, like virtually everyone from the moderate center all the way to the left, got most of the facts wrong. Your woke cousin on Twitter doing this, that's one thing. The ACLU, however, should and must be held to a higher standard. Based on Wisconsin law, it appears the correct verdict was handed down, and an organization with the words civil liberties in its title should not be siding with the prosecution. My two cents on Rittenhouse? I'd say he's none of the following. White supremacist, patriot, vigilante, or hero. As for the underlying issue of guns, when I come back from this break, I will share some of the missing context on that so-called debate. Hello, post-woke listeners. Mickey Z here, inviting you to check out my Substack at Mickey Z, 
www.substack.com. You can become a free email subscriber there, and that will give you access to all of my public podcasts and articles. But you also have the option for as little as $5 a month to become a paid subscriber. That will get you premium content, the ability to comment on all of my posts, and the knowledge that you are really helping to make this project grow. I do need paid subscribers, and I very much appreciate any of you who could do so, or at least spread the word to others who might be able to do so. If you are not in a position financially, please, by all means, sign up as a free subscriber, get the content, let me know what you think, and get involved, because we want to gather as many people to this uh, open-minded community of listeners practicing the art of intellectual self-defense. So again, it's mickeyz.substack.com, and I hope to see you there soon. In my career as a writer, public speaker, and now a podcaster, I've covered a lot of ground. But I have to admit that I haven't discussed the topic of guns as much as I could have, so I thought this was a really good time to do what I do best, which is add in some of the context missing from the public debates and urge you to consider this context when pondering and creating your own opinion. Now, the first foundational point I want you to factor in is male violence. It must be factored in. And here are just a couple of reasons why. On average, 57 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner every month in the United States. Over half of female victims of intimate partner homicide in the U.S. are killed with a gun. Over a 10-year time period between 2008 and 2017, there was actually a reduction in intimate partner homicides of women that involved weapons, except for with guns. Homicide by guns increased by 15% in that same 10-year time period. And when you factor in attempted murders using guns, nearly 1 million women in the home of the brave have survived being shot or shot at by an intimate partner. Translation, male violence remains one of the planet's most insidious problems, and the omnipresence of guns makes it easier for men to commit their violent acts. So once I've laid that foundational context, I want to then move on and urge you, when, to, when thinking about guns and the gun debate, to not trust your newsfeed when it comes to understanding and formulating opinions about these issues. Because unless you do a little digging, it would be really easy to believe that the United States is the gun death capital of the world. Clickbait headlines, news feed posts, and conversations based on emotion distract from the fact that the U.S. has the 32nd highest rate of deaths from gun violence in the world, roughly 3.96 deaths per 100,000 people. In 2019, there were 37,200 reported deaths by firearm in the land of the free. Is that 37,200 too many? Of course it is. Is it comparable to, say, Guatemala, Venezuela, or El Salvador? I suppose that depends on your definition of comparable, but the rate per 100,000 in El Salvador is 36.78. Compare that to 3.96 deaths per 100,000 in the U.S. Meanwhile, more than 38,000 
people die every single year in crashes on U.S. roadways. An additional 4.5 million on average are injured seriously enough to require medical attention. Road crashes are the leading cause of death in the U.S. for people 54 and under, an average of 102 per day. Context, about 500 Americans are killed per year by rifles. Now, let's be clear. I'm not comparing guns to cars, but I am comparing the media coverage, public perception, and psychological manipulation. Where are the rallies and petitions related to 100 Americans needlessly dying per day in road crashes? Where's the outrage and the legislation and the campaign speeches and the Time magazine covers for the lives lost to the car culture? Why do we hear about mothers fearing their sons won't come home because a cop might shoot him, when in reality she should be way more nervous about him getting into a car? We just spent nearly two years allegedly trying to keep people safe from a virus with a fatality rate that even Lord Fauci himself says may be considerably less than 1%. But if widespread safety and risk avoidance is our collective but futile aim, why are we still manufacturing vehicles that can attain speeds higher than, say, 20 or 30 miles an hour? Why is the speed limit so damn high when we all know that fatality rates rise with the, a vehicle's speed? Think about it. We're obsessed about things like COVID and guns, but yet we ingest carcinogens, use toxic chemicals, and drive our death machines at dangerous speeds. If the powers that shouldn't be really gave a shit about us, they would have taken action to stop all of that and more. Instead, we're happily being divided over flawed mitigation tactics and manipulated statistics. But back to my point, the U.S. gun fatality rate is much lower than advertised, while a worse problem, road crash fatalities, is barely ever mentioned. But that's not it. I have one more major component of the gun debate that is consistently and conveniently omitted by just about everyone, and I'll get to that component right after this short break. A small number of gun-related deaths in the U.S. can be chalked up to accidents, to law enforcement incidents, and to other undetermined circumstances. But here's an important number. Only about four out of 10 gun-related deaths are murders. Four out of 10 gun-related deaths are murders. But when the numbers get recited to us in the name of headlines and fear-mongering, a very important detail is always left out. 60% of annual gun-related deaths in God's country are suicides. That's about 24,000 a year, assuming about 45,000 overall gun deaths. Let that sink in. And then while it's sinking in, please allow me to address the statistical manipulation at work here. If you subtract gun debts related to suicides and accidents, the annual gun-related murder rate drops to about 13,000 per year. Is that 13,000 too many? Of course it is. Is that anywhere near the death rates of cancer, heart disease, suicide, or road crashes? Nope. 
So why are we fixated on guns when, for example, medical error is the third leading cause of death in the United States, taking about a quarter million lives per year? Here's a fact. Your average doctor is far, far more dangerous than any AR-15. Finally, here is, I guess, what would be my primary point. If we're all in this together, why do we patently ignore the rising suicide rate? While we squabble over which lives matter or not, suicide is now the 12th leading cause of death in the U.S. For those between the ages of 35 and 54, it is the fourth leading cause. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among individuals between 10 and 34. Suicides outnumber homicides in the U.S. by more than two to one, and since the year 2001, the suicide rate in America has increased by 31%. Gun control won't stop this trend. Gene therapies disguised as vaccinations won't protect us from a culture steeped in despair and division. Marches and protests remain as impotent as ever. We pretend our way of life is so exemplary. Meanwhile, more and more of us are choosing death over that way of life. The solutions must be more foundational and compassionate than the so-called debate we've been programmed to embrace. So while pondering hot-button issues like gun control, I urge you to not surrender your capacity for critical thought. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. On a much deeper level, collectively, we are a culture in crisis and our problems run far deeper than the current gun control debate allows. It is long overdue that we recognize the desperate imperative to do much more than win a Twitter debate. Let's choose to connect rather than compete. Let's not fall for the conditioning that ensnares us into false conflicts. And I'll explain what I mean by that right after this short break. As always, I invite all of you to reach out to let me know what you think of the show, any suggestions you might have, and so on. I'm curious to get as much feedback as I can. To do so, just check the show notes and find my email address. That's the easiest way to reach me. And we still have the ongoing question of, are you a nonconformist? And if so, what makes you a nonconformist? So feel free to answer that on an ongoing basis. And um, I look forward to hearing from you. And now, let's get back to the show. As you can see, when I say I'm going to fill in some missing context, I have no shortage of facts and figures. But really what I'm trying to do is provoke this general question. Why do you believe what you believe? And not just about guns or whatever topic I'm tackling each week on this show, but about anything. Because in many cases, our beliefs are the manufactured result of relentless conscious conditioning. Society's version of pseudo-politics is all smoke and mirrors. Media-hyped con men and women are sold to us like any other commodity. Ideologies are neatly packaged and marketed with the same intensity and deception as a new pair of sneakers. The essential difference between politics and standard consumerism is the supposed presentation of two distinct parties or ideologies. The corporate state offers us a choice. This is one of the greatest sales jobs 
ever put over on the masses. We are choosing sides in a false conflict by settling for the accepted alternatives, Democrat or Republican, red or blue or whatever. We are allowing those in power to control our choice instead of us seeking other alternatives. There is only one difference between Democrats and Republicans. They tell different lies to get elected. Once in office, these pseudo-politicians are like entertainers. They present an unattainable image of life that we strive for in vain. We trust these men and women with our moral decisions and are satisfied with the illusion of having elected them. The voters are left to act like the bull in a bullfight. We chase the elusive red cape. We are distracted from the real target through an attractive image or illusion. Our energies are so poorly focused that we offer no threat to the status quo. In fact, we willingly contribute by assuming our role as a consumer slash voter. The few who try to awaken from this nightmare often end up tying their emotions to a cause instead of the more logical path of making a cause out of their own life. So instead of experiencing the subversive pleasure of thinking for ourselves, we delude ourselves through some reactionary subjugation, subjugation to this cause. And on the rare occasion that a radical ideal slips through and is actually heard far and wide, the corporate state quickly absorbs it repackages it and sells it back to us as a fad or trend. Our path forward cannot be a path that leads us deeper into this self-sabotaging rabbit hole. We need to stop trusting those in power, whether it's big tech, big pharma, or any of all the rest. We need to practice intellectual self-defense and connect with other free thinkers to create communities instead of more hive minds. So what ideas do you have to help make this happen. We'll be back with my Uncle Butch right after this short break. As you listen to Post Woke Episode 6, the next episode is already in the planning stages. I will be talking about Helping Homeless Women NYC. That is my five years and counting one-man project to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. I will tell you a little bit about how I got started, about the incredible women that I've met and what they've taught me. And of course, I will let you know how you can get involved and support this work as I continue moving forward. So I invite you to keep in mind to check out episode seven. And thanks as always for listening, supporting, and subscribing. Let's get back to the show. And we're back with my story of the week. To offer a little context, I'm going to get, read you two paragraphs that I've already written on this story. Here goes. Growing up in a working class, blue collar neighborhood, long before there was an internet, often left kids like me to our own devices. We found myriad ways to amuse ourselves and also to play sports. We were troublemakers, sure, but athletes above all. One time, however, it was my uncle who made the whole sports thing possible. That said, the story you're about to hear would be impossible in today's world. My family was living on the fourth floor of a 5-4 floor walk-up at the time. I was maybe 10 or 11. One flight down from us lived my maternal grandpa and his son, Bernard. To me and my cousins, he was and still is Uncle Butch. He got me into baseball at a very young age, including some awe-inspiring trips to Yankee Stadium. Upon returning home from serving in Vietnam, Uncle Butch decided he wanted to do more. 
So Uncle Butch is here again on Post Woke to tell us more about this story. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me again. I really love being on your show, uh, Nikki. I um, loved having you. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, before I get into the actual story, I got to tell you uh, about a little background of where I was prior to being 28 years old and in Long Island City. I grew up in Manhattan and I played a lot of, of street ball and stoop ball and stick ball. Uh, and we would also play uh, at the park, we play softball. And I was looked upon, and I always look at that, that part of my life as really wonderful. I enjoyed it as somebody who was sort of like captain material. They would always come to me and another guy who was also a very good ball player. And he and I started this league of uh, the, sort of two teams. And I think they were called the uh, Cherokee uh the Cherokee Comanches or something and and we used to go to the park and um it was it was great you know we we'd pick guys the one thing I'd always do is always pick somebody who was never picked before I hated leaving somebody out so years go by and and now uh, I'm in the military I get out of military in September of 68 and by early spring of 69 uh, I'm realizing that, gee, you know, there's nobody out there. There's no kids out there. I don't see anybody playing ball or anything. And it just occurred to me, maybe this is something that I could do, that I could get involved in. And so, as you, you explained, I think, uh, I, I made up some posters, went into some grocery stores, and uh, the uh, there was a uh, a pharmacy there as well. I think it was Rite Aid or something. I put the signs in there and the following Saturday, I, I advertised it for the following Saturday. So the following Saturday, I said, everybody who wants to, who's interested, meet at the, uh, the schoolyard opposite the church that we all went to, St. Hugh's Church, uh, St. Pat's, I mean, St. Yeah. Pat's Church. And I was surprised really when we got as many kids to show up as there were. I can't give you a count because I don't remember. Do you remember? Well, we had enough to, to follow the template that you created where we were able to form two teams. So it, it had to be either, <clears throat> I don't know, 16 to 20, because I think you could get away with a softball team with eight and maybe as many as 10 because we were little. But I, I just want to quickly interject that your team, the Cherokee Comanches, in 2021, I think they will be renamed the Manhattan softball team, but that's just, that's just a side note there. Um, right. Like, like <laughs> yeah. the Washington football team. Yeah, yeah, basically that. But so, and I also, speaking of yeah. things that wouldn't fly today, I wanted to point out to the listeners that a single man in his late 20s sharing an apartment with his father was asking young boys to meet him in a local park at a time when few other people would be around. And nobody involved in this venture thought anything of it at the time. I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it felt like a good thing. And like you said, when we arrived, my dad came with us. He was the only parent to show up, which said a lot about our old neighborhood where we don't even know if the other kids even told their parents where they were. But you, me, and my dad walked across to a PS4 schoolyard and the 
the park was full of boys with baseball gloves and, and a couple of bats and maybe between the ages of 10 and 12. And like you said, the, all of a sudden we had this scenario like what you had in Manhattan where there were enough kids to create two teams to do an ongoing Saturday battle between us. And I, I loved, I was, I loved the whole experience. I was the official pitcher for both sides. Yes. So I didn't have a turn at bat, but that's okay. I didn't want one anyway, but uh, the kids were just all wonderful. There was one, there, there's always one or two though. that yes. gives you a little bit of a hard time. Uh, and because I was also the official umpire. So I yeah. had this, you know, I, I had to call it from the pitcher's mound uh, somebody who was safe or out at first base or third base or at home plate or something like that. And uh, one of the uh, fellas, uh, kids on the other team, his name was Danny, he always gave us a hard time. Yeah. He was always kind of argumentative, but that's okay. I, I expected that. He, he was you clever, know. though. He was he, his, his comebacks were clever. And, and for me, at the time, I was sort of just like th this smart nerd in, my, in St. Pat's Grammar School. And when you put these signs up, I had no idea walking into the park that a bunch of the cool kids were going to show up. And it was at first intimidating, but it was absolutely essential for my social life because I became accepted by the cool crowd. And pretty much overnight, I went from being the smart nerd to being one of the cool troublemakers. But Danny was a little older than me and he was def definitely a ringleader. And, and he had some, he had some good, good natured fun with yeah. you, but, but, but we, we had a good time. And, and like, I, I'm looking at the notes I originally wrote on this, like just for people to, to, to conceptualize, like there were like no insurance forms or liability <laughs> waivers. And I don't even know if we knew everyone's last name, like the kids, we just knew their first names. They showed up. You, you gave us kind of tryouts and, and, and tried your best to divide us into the most evenly matched squads and, and started a game and we were hooked. We were absolutely hooked. Yes. And, and, I, I really I loved I loved every minute of it. It was wonderful because I've I've always had this affinity for you know looking at at kids who were sort of out of it didn't didn't have any connection and in those days uh, being on the street and playing somewhere that was how I grew up and I was just amazed that before that when I was walking around Saturdays or weekdays before that, there wasn't really anybody out there doing those things. There wasn't, a, and it was very disappointing. And also disappointing was the fact that, as you mentioned, there were no parents, other parents around yep. that did that. Uh, we saw, I saw that later on when I had kids. Uh, this was before I got married. So when I had uh, uh, two, two boys and the oldest boy was out there in the backyard, I would frequently have... Uh, other people come in, other kids from around the block, and they would look and they would say, can I play too? And I never turned anybody down. Everybody was welcome to come join the crowd. Uh, back in 1969 and also back in 1989, as, as, and, and there was never any, any problem with that. Uh, what I was amazed was uh, the fact that if you look at kids now, it's hard to get them out of the house. Yeah, you know yeah. because they're always they're always on. Even at twelve, they're on their cell phones, or they're on their videos, or they're on something. 
And it's so disappointing because I didn't live like that. I didn't have a chance to live any other way, but I didn't live like that. Yeah, I, and, I wonder. I wonder today. I can't speak authoritatively on this, but I do know that sports has become incredibly organized and actually monetized. Like for example, basketball, if you're identified at a young age, I'm talking 11, 12 years old with potential, you're very rarely going to play the, the traditional street ball anymore. You're going to be kind of recruited onto an AAU team, taught a certain thing, start traveling. And what you experienced as a kid, and then what you helped me experience as a kid, and then later on you helped your, your, your son's experience, was this impromptu casual gathering of neighborhood kids playing a game without you didn't have to have uniforms and everything wasn't like strictly by the book you could like you said you could have a, um, an official pitcher and we didn't actually have umpires and nobody sat around saying boy i wish we were in an organized league it was it was our league and every saturday we more like people showed up more excitedly and the rivalry between the two teams was was genuine and i I, I kind of feel for kids who don't have that kind of organic street. And like in our case, I'm saying street because let me say to the listeners, when we say we were playing in a field, it wasn't grass, it was concrete. And I'm sure you know, like, right. I, sometimes I say I, I'm, I was playing in a football field and people say, wait, wait what? no, it's like, no, it's concrete. Like if you grew up in the city, it's very hard to find uh, grass fields. Although you did take us to, River Park one Sunday down through the Queensbridge pro projects to play, which actually had grass and real you bases and that. stuff like I can, that. I completely <clears throat> forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's another one where we kind of broke a societal rule, where because because our team was our two teams were I would say primarily white and Latino, while Queensbridge was notoriously black, and we went down there and played with them, and there was no sense of like there was like. There wasn't any sense that anyone was doing anything wrong or, or stepping onto someone's turf. The the the, the um, common denominator was that we all wanted to play sports, and we were boys between the ages of ten and twelve. And boom, there we were. And you you didn't think twice before saying, "Hey, let's all walk down to Queensbridge and play in River Park." You know, and I was I was very trusting, and in a sense, <laughs> I, I look at it now and I say, "How silly was I? How stupid was I?" not to have insurance forms or permission slips from the parents or anything like that, because we never did that when we were kids. Yep. You know, we, we just got out there and played. Yeah. And, and, and be, to go back to what you said, it's questionable. Most of the parents probably didn't even know where their sons were in sense of like, if one of them tripped and fell and got scratched their leg, like which happens every day on, on a schoolyard. I don't think anybody, I just think it was a different kind of society. People wouldn't immediately be looking to see if there was an adult there that they can blame and sue. It was like if you grew up in a in an urban jungle, inevitably you were going to get some bumps and bruises on the concrete. Like that's that's where we played yeah. all our sports. Now, I don't, I don't know how long uh, the season was, if you could call it a season. But, <laughs> but uh, getting into the second part of this story, which was uh, somehow uh, I had heard or somebody had heard that the Yankees were offering uh, tickets uh, 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 courtesy of Con, Con Edison, the yes. power company in New York. And uh, I remember the guy who was sort of in charge of it. He was a coach with the Yankees. He had been a, a catcher with the Minnesota Twins. His name was Earl Batty. And Earl Batty sort of ran this thing. And you had to go 
through him to get permission and all that. And I can't remember how many, but it was a good number of kids that came with us that day yes. to, to the Yankee Stadium. We sat in the bleachers, which we didn't mind. It didn't wasn't a big deal. We weren't going to get box seats. And there were about 20 of us, I think. I think and so, thank, too. Thank goodness your father was there. I appreciated <laughs> that because yeah. you have to have somebody at the front and the back when you get on the subway, off the subway trains, you know, <laughs> to make sure that you don't leave anybody behind, you know. And, and just think about it. Like, just just for clarity for the listeners, I, I looked it up. The The program used to be called the Fresh Air Fund, and that it, Con Edison partnered with the Yankees, and we qualified as as uh, kind of street urchins in this bad neighborhood, and you got us all the paper. I don't know what they charged you particularly or if they charged you at all, but we loved being in the bleachers, and fortunately, my dad came. But just, just for context, it was a night game. We were like... 10, uh, 11 years old, you and my dad, two yeah. complete strangers taking 20, 10 or 12 year olds on the subway from the Queens, from Queens to the Bronx and back. Like, <laughs> again, inconceivable today. Yeah. And yet when I still look back at it and I could see you are too, look at it with just a fond memory that we, all these boys had, had become new. Some of them were friends to begin with, but I made tons of new friends and just that bonding of it's one thing to play every Saturday, but then to meet on a, on a weeknight and go up to a Yankee game it, it together. It was like, we would like a, 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 a real group after that totally bonding. And, and um, like I said, I'll never forget this experience. And it's, I find it particularly funny in the context of what the world is like today. Yes, and I I can't emphasize how much it meant to me. You know, I I, I didn't think of it as um, oh I'm doing this hard job or something or uh, you know oh groan groan it's going to be a real nightmare. I enjoyed every minute of it, really. You know, I I I, I couldn't be happier with that experience. You know. I I remember it. Like I, I could still. You looked forward to it. You had it organized. You had like you, you had a huge amount of responsibility. And like you said, when just of keeping an eye on us and and being the pitcher and the umpire. But it was crystal clear there was nowhere else you'd rather be on those Saturday mornings. And and if to to give it sort of a, a moral to the story type of thing, I look at this now in retrospect and just say that that you saw a lack of community like a need for community. And instead of like consulting experts or authorities or doing something a quote unquote official way, you did it the old fashioned way, the way human beings, I believe, evolved to, to create community, like actually get together and meet, come up with a plan and get to know each other and, and turn it into a routine that it becomes something you look forward to where people go to the same place every week. And then all week long, I could tell you when I would go to St. Pat's Grammar School and run into the boys in the hallway of all different ages we'd be talking about it like this was this was something this was a big part of our lives and and i i'm so grateful that i had that experience and grateful that you created it well thank you very much it was wonderful well that does it for episode six of post woke i want to thank you for listening i want to thank my uncle butch for being here and i want to encourage you to keep listening keep questioning keep spreading the word and keep your guard up. Thank you.